Hi, I'm Brian Mandel, the editor-in-chief of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, CCJM. Welcome to Beyond the Pages, CCJM podcast, where we will take you in depth into the content of selected articles from the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine and explore a few interesting tangents along the way. Through moderated interviews with our authors and other experts in the field, we hope the clinicians will gain a more nuanced perspective of clinical concepts that are changing the practice of medicine and be able to apply this perspective to the care of our patients. Thank you for joining us on an episode of Beyond the Pages, Cleveland Clinic Journal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Andrei Bratano, Senior Associate Program Director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program in the Medicine Institute of Cleveland Clinic and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Holly Peterson in the Department of Breast Services, Cleveland Clinic, and Associate Professor at Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University, and Dr. Benjamin Calhoun of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, Lindberger Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in North Carolina. They are here to talk to us about the article published in the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, Surgical De-Escalation, Are We Ready for Observation of Benign High-Risk Breast Lesions Found on Core Needle Biopsy? They published this article along with Dr. Deborah Pratt from the Department of General Surgery and Breast Services in Cleveland Clinic, who's a clinical assistant professor at Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. Thank you all for being here. Now let's go beyond the pages. So we know that imaging-guided core needle biopsy, or CNB, to detect abnormalities identified on breast imaging has been the standard of care for decades. Could you please explain what surgical de-escalation means in the context of breast cancer detected on the CNB and how it has evolved over time? Good morning, and thank you so much for having us. Uh, I'm Holly Peterson here with Dr. Ben Calhoun, who is a national and international expert in this area of uh, of pathology. He's a pathologist currently in North Carolina, but used to be uh, the head of breast pathology here at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, but it's it's an interesting topic that's changing in medicine and like a lot of, like a lot of other things in in breast cancer and breast care uh, there's a lot of controversy and so we thought it was an important area mainly for uh, primary care providers and those caring for uh, women's women in any area women's health health providers to to be aware of the changes that are going on in breast care in in the high risk setting. Uh, surgical de-escalation has really been part of of a larger movement of the multidisciplinary breast cancer field in general for decades. Uh, we, you know, we started out doing more and now we're trying to do less with the same level of, uh, of treatment effect and, and minimizing the morbidity to the patients. That's really the general idea. Balancing oncologic outcomes with surgical morbidity and quality of life. In this case, 
Traditionally, many benign high-risk lesions in the breast have been taken out surgically to make sure that there is no cancer uh, that is reflected in the benign high-risk lesion. It may be adjacent to a more serious lesion. And historically, these breast biopsies were performed surgically and now at almost all institutions are being done by, by core needle biopsy. And what's interesting is that while clear accepted guidelines are followed for breast cancer, management of high-risk lesions differs among, amongst institutions. And we feel that it's important for people at different institutions to understand the subtleties and nuances of these different areas uh, so that they can safely practice and counsel their patients. Um, you know, we, in terms of surgical de-escalation and its history, um, the, the Halstead radical mastectomy marked the beginning of, of surgical care of the breast in 1894, a disfiguring surgery removing the breast, all axillary lymph nodes and the chest wall muscles. And later in the 20th century, the simple mastectomy uh, basically replaced the the radical mastectomy after results of a national trial showed equivalent survival. Toward the end of the 20th century, studies showed that breast conservation, which is lumpectomy or partial mastectomy uh, with, uh, con combined with radiation therapy, uh, was equivalent to mastectomy in the, in, in the treatment of early stage disease. We've now moved on to surgical de-escalation in the axilla. Many women no longer have to have complete axillary dissection. They have something called a sentinel lymph node biopsy where nodes are sampled and there's a much lower rate of lymphedema for patients. Simultaneously, there's been a de-escalation of radiation therapy. It used to always be five to six weeks, and now there are three-week courses and one-week courses and even intraoperative one-time courses uh, for patients. And it's being evaluated whether older patients may need radiation therapy at all. Future areas of de-escalation include freezing cancers, cryoablation, and even watching something called ductal carcinoma in situ, which is uh, a cancer that's essentially confined to the milk ducts. So that's really the backdrop of this, of this paper uh, in terms of surgical de-escalation. And the question being asked now is, do all benign high-risk lesions that we've excised in the past really need to be excised or can they be safely watched? Ben, do you have anything to add to that, that question? I think I would just um, echo something that you mentioned, which is we're in a sort of a paradoxical moment with management of some lesions diagnosed on image-guided core needle biopsies in that we have multiple uh, open clinical trials for surgery versus active surveillance for ductal carcinoma in situ, which is we tend to think of as a more advanced lesion compared to the benign and atypical lesions we're talking about today. Uh, yet we 
don't really have any very large open trials for those lesions and have limited prospective evidence regarding the benign and atypical lesions that we're discussing today. So, so thank you both for this uh, amazing history of the surgical management of breast cancers. Um, and as you mentioned, today we're going to discuss more about benign high-risk lesions, which we thought as internists traditionally have required, have always required surgical excision. So could you please remind us what high-risk breast lesions are and why is the escalation significant for the management of these lesions? Sure. So we use that term, um, and, and there can be varying definitions of that term in some studies. These are histologically defined uh, entities in the breast, mostly epithelial abnormalities uh, that uh, were found historically to confer an increased risk for the subsequent development of breast cancer. Uh, and they were studied in very large benign breast disease cohorts um, in the Nashville cohort, the Mayo Clinic benign breast disease cohort, and the nurses' health study. And what those studies showed was um, uh, what the frequency of subsequent development of carcinoma was after a biopsy diagnosis of, for instance, atypical ductal hyperplasia. Uh, mostly what we talk about today is the risk of finding an adjacent synchronous carcinoma at the time that the patient has undergone imaging studies and a core needle biopsy, really not the future development of carcinoma. So there are two, two related but different types of risk. One is the risk of having an adjacent synchronous carcinoma that hasn't yet been detected prior to surgery. And then the other risk uh, is the risk of, of developing carcinoma uh, at some later date in the future. So that's how these lesions were defined and that's how their initial risk was studied. And one other thing I think to bear in mind about the way they were defined histologically is most of that work was done on open biopsies and in many instances in specimens from the pre-mammographic era. So we as pathologists are applying criteria uh, from those specimens and from that time to now smaller image-guided core needle biopsy specimens, uh, which is, I think, something we all need to, to bear in mind when we make these diagnoses on core biopsies. Yeah, so really, really, there's two issues with benign breast biopsies, as Ben outlined. One is the upgrade rate, the the finding of invasive or non-invasive cancer at the time of a surgical excision of a benign high-risk lesion. The other is management of a patient with high-risk lesions, and. They, those can either be diagnosed on core needle biopsy or at final excision. And the reason has been outlined for following those patients is that they have an increased risk of the subsequent development of breast cancer, not the upgrade rate at the time of, of the finding, but uh, subsequently, and in fact, Ben and I looked uh, retrospectively uh, and published in 2017 a paper on the Cleveland Clinic's experience with benign high-risk lesions and found that it, it, in keeping with other studies that with atypical duct hyperplasia and atypical lobular hyperplasia, there is about a 30% risk of developing breast cancer over the subsequent 25 years. And with lobular carcinoma in situ or LCIS, another benign high-risk lesion, there's about a one to two 
percent per year risk of uh, of developing breast cancer in the future. And high-risk patients can be offered enhanced surveillance with breast MRI screening or even preventive medication to reduce their risk. So it's an important distinction to make uh, whether it's excised or not. One, one thing that I just wanted to mention uh, with regard to the, um, the upgrade rates is that specifically patients have upgrade only to invasive or non-invasive breast cancer. If, if a lesion is upgraded to a benign high-risk lesion, such as atypical hyperplasia or LCIS, it's still an actionable finding. And so Ben, I find it interesting that this that this definition only includes cancer upgrades and not uh, not high risk upgrades. Say you start with a papilloma and then at final excision you have a papilloma with associated, ADH or atypical duct hyperplasia, which then puts the patient into a high-risk program. Uh, so that's the definition that I've used um, in most of uh, the papers that I've written has been invasive carcinoma or DCIS. Um, there is some um, uh, debate in the literature about the appropriate definition of an upgrade, and other um, authors and other studies have included high-risk lesions uh, including the example that you just gave, because um, if a patient starts with a benign introductal papilloma, subsequently is diagnosed with atypical ductal hyperplasia on excision, she may be offered um, much uh, more intense follow-up, more frequent imaging, maybe more frequent clinical breast exams, and maybe even offered, um, you know, uh, on the basis of some of the breast cancer prevention trials, could be offered uh, chemo prevention. Um, so, uh, some authors have, have argued for that. Um, I think uh, most of us have tended to focus on the finding of an adjacent uh, synchronous carcinoma because we know that's the most ominous finding. Um, but I think there's, um, there's room for discussion um, about the definition of an upgrade. So <clears throat> thank you so much for explaining the term upgrade rate uh, and what it means for the breast lesions found on uh, core needle biopsy. Um, I would like, if you can, to, uh, to clarify another term for our listeners, um, radiologic pathologic concordance, especially because you mentioned uh, biopsies done before or after we started using more and more mammography and MRIs of the breast and so on. And Dr. Joseph Crow, who founded the Breast Center here at Cleveland Clinic, uh, also was was interested in in these questions and uh, wrote a couple interesting papers. One back in in 1991, not all non palpable breast cancers are alike, uh, meaning that you know the radiologic findings, uh, you know, being mammographic calcifications mass lesion on mammography or architectural distortion seen on mammography uh, may uh, play out differently in terms of the upgrade rates. And now we have, of course, MRI screening for high-risk patients uh, and, and masses and non-mass-like enhancements seen on MRI, as well as digital breast tomosynthesis or 
TOMO, the three-dimensional mammogram, which is uh, is finding, uh, you know, more, say, radial scar lesions and and other lesions. So it, it can the 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 whole field continues to evolve, and I think it's really important that the primary care provider understand the differences between these terms and how the field is changing. Um, so Ben, when when we talk about radiologic pathologic concordance, what does that even mean? So this is something that the radiologists are required to do for each biopsy they perform um, under the uh, Mammography Quality Standards Act and, and related regulations. So when we pathologists release the final report, uh, the radiologist will compare the uh, pathologic diagnosis to the imaging findings and uh, make a determination as to whether they are concordant. Does the pathologic diagnosis account fully account for the imaging findings that were the indication for the core needle biopsy? In many instances, the radiologists do this uh, on their own. Um, in some institutions, there's a little bit of a developing trend for uh, uh, multidisciplinary teams to meet and discuss benign and atypical lesions discovered on core needle biopsy and make a determination as to whether they're concordant or not or targeted or, or incidental. Uh, but um, irrespective of the multidisciplinary conference, this is something that's really a legal and regulatory uh, compliance uh, obligation of the radiologists who perform the biopsies. And the radiologists often communicate directly with the pathologists in terms of, of uh, making that determination whether it is concordant with the imaging findings uh, based on, on some of the pathologic findings and also some of the patient characteristics, right? Yes, we do. You know, we 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 get contacted um, with questions about that, um, and in some instances, you know, we may be asked to uh, the question, "Hey, did you you cut some deeper levels into the block? Are you sure you've seen everything there is to be seen?" Um, because we see something on imaging, and and we put a needle right through it, and so um, it's you know, I've been fortunate to enjoy really good working relationships with breast imagers where I've been, and um, it's great to have that dialogue with them. This concludes part one of this episode. Please join us for part two as our conversation continues beyond the pages. Thank you for your insights in helping us to go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. To read CCJM articles, visit ccjm.org. To participate in other accredited educational activities, visit ccfcme.org. You can subscribe to the podcast on Google Play, Spotify, or however you prefer to access your podcasts.